Hey, I'm Daniel, and welcome to the Milwaukee Chi Alpha Podcast. What you're going to get from this podcast is biblical encouragement for college students in Milwaukee. And if you don't fit that description, this can still be a good listen for you. What you're about to listen to is our sermon series called Sent. We're studying the book of Acts, the ordinary people who had an extraordinary story. talking about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you have heard that name, Diedrich Bonhoeffer? A couple, few people. How many of you know his story? Okay, a couple people. So Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian during World War II. He was a German pastor and theologian during World War II. During that time, watching Hitler and the Nazis come to power. And Bonhoeffer was one of the first voices to stand up and say, this is not okay. He was very vocal about it. He preached regularly about how we need to love the people around us and how this new regime coming in was not doing that. And the Nazis, for obvious reasons, did not like Bonhoeffer because he was preaching Jesus and he was preaching a truth that didn't allow people to sit by or to abuse their fellow country people, countrymen, at the hand of the Nazis. And Hitler, sorry, not Hitler, Bonhoeffer had a chance to leave Germany right before things got really bad when the world started realizing, oh, this is a problem, this is not a good thing. He had a chance to leave Germany to go to America. And he had been in America before and had another chance to stay there through the duration of the war. He was well-known. People in America loved him. He was an up-and-coming theologian, a well-known pastor. But he decided he couldn't. His friends and family begged him. The Nazi regime would not let him preach because they knew his message was for Jesus and not for them. But he refused to stay in America while his countrymen suffered at the hands of the Nazis. And this may not seem like a religious decision, but for Bonhoeffer, you couldn't separate his faith from the well-being and care of others. He famously said these words that were published in 1937 in the book Cost of of Discipleship. He famously said, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he would have written this before making that decision to not flee Germany. Six years after writing this, in 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo for conspiring against Hitler for the sake of his country. With those famous words ringing, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. As we continue reading through Acts, we're going to look at Paul and his story of God bidding him come and die. So the story we're looking at is Acts chapter 21 through 25. We're not going to read through all of it, though you should. There's a lot of crazy things that happen in this passage, so I'm going to do my best to summarize this. So starting in Acts 21 verse 17, Paul goes to Jerusalem. 
In Jerusalem, Paul has friends, but there's also a lot of religious leaders that really don't like Paul. So his friends say to him, hey, Paul, let's do this purification ritual so that they know that like you're not a bad person and you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So they do this purification ritual, but it doesn't really work because seven days later, he's out in public and the crowd grabs him and starts beating him mercilessly. And it's so intense that a Roman commander gets involved, and it's so chaotic that the Roman commander can't figure out what's happening, so just decides to arrest Paul. So Paul's arrested, and as they're, like, trying to, like, take him to the barracks, the crowd is so violent that the soldiers have to carry Paul up the stairs. So he's at the top of the stairs, and in chapter 22, Paul's given an opportunity to speak to the crowd. So he addresses this crazy, violent crowd that just was trying to beat him. And he tells them his conversion story, which is great. I told that story to Juliet today, actually. Good story. He tells them his conversion story. He tells them the gospel. And he ends by saying that God is sending him, Paul, far away to the Gentiles. So the crowd gets really mad and starts, and I quote, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. I just love that imagery. They're like so mad they're flinging dust in the air. So the Romans who arrested him are about to flog him, so they're about to beat him. When Paul suddenly says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? So the Roman commander and the Roman officers start to panic because that's a pretty big deal that they're about to start flogging a Roman citizen who hasn't had a trial. So instead, Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 23... As he's starting this trial in front of the Sanhedrin, he starts by calling one of the members of the Sanhedrin a whitewashed wall and then goes off on these people. Then in the next sentence, he apologizes because he realizes, oh, I didn't realize you were the high priest. I'm sorry I called you a whitewashed wall. So then Paul gives his defense in a way that he knows will stir up a debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over heaven and the resurrection of the dead because these two sides like really argued over this. And so Paul's like, I'm going to talk about this. So they start arguing with each other. And in all the chaos, the Romans are still trying to hold trial but can't find anything wrong with Paul. But again, the violence is so great that they take him back to the barracks anyway. That night, so Paul's in jail. God appears to him and says, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I don't know if Paul found this encouraging or exciting. We know he really wanted to get to Rome. So maybe he was excited, but also like he's in jail when he hears this. Not that this is the first time he's been in jail. So Paul hears this message. And while he's in jail, there's a plot that the crowds come up with to kill Paul. But... The son of Paul's sister heard about it and told Paul, who told a centurion to let his sister's son tell the commander about the plot. (laughs) You really need to read this story because it's just, it's, it's great. So that happens. So the commander responds by sending out 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and if that wasn't enough, 200 spearmen to transport Paul to Governor Felix in the middle of the night so that nobody can kill Paul. So that happens. So they take Paul and a letter of explanation to Felix who keeps him locked up for five days until his accusers can come. And you guys, we're still not at the end of this story. So then he stands trial. 
Paul defends himself, and we find out that all of this has happened in a matter of 12 days. And Paul ends his defense by basically saying, this is my paraphrase, but basically saying, maybe they were offended that I talked about the resurrection of the dead. And Felix says, we're going to wait for Lysia, the commander, to come. And we don't know if Lysia ever showed up. But what we do know is that Felix and his wife started coming and listening to Paul. And to quote scripture, as he spoke about, as Paul spoke about faith in Christ Jesus, oh, sorry, they listened to Paul as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Verse 26, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently to talk with him. Great way to witness, like, I'm not going to bribe you, but you can keep coming and talking to me. And so here we find out that Paul is now in prison for two years when Porcius Festus takes over as governor, but Felix left Paul in prison because he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. So all of this takes us to chapter 25, Acts 25, verses 6 through 12. Hopefully, hopefully you got something out of that. At the very least, it's all very chaotic, and they're going through a lot of trouble on one side to kill Paul and on the other side to, like, not kill him but not free him. So here, starting in verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. Again, Festus is the new governor. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. It seems such a simple line, but that one line changes the course of Paul's life. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appeared to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And we see parallels here between Paul and Bonhoeffer. Because Paul knew there was a risk. He went to Jerusalem knowing that people there didn't like him, knowing there was a risk. That's why they did the whole purification ritual to try avoid or at least lessen the risk. He knew there was a risk, and he went anyway. And that's what we saw with Bonhoeffer, too. He knew there was a risk, but he said, no, I will stay in Germany. Both Paul and Bonhoeffer didn't take the easy way out. They didn't take the easy way out. They didn't fight for their own self-preservation. Bonhoeffer was executed on April 9th, 1945, days before that prison camp was liberated. And Paul traveled to Rome to stand trial before Caesar 
and spent the rest of his life in prison until, as Christian tradition tells us, he was beheaded for his faith. Bonhoeffer could have gone to America and survived the war. If he had stayed in America, he could have stopped. And if he, had, if he had stayed in America, if he had stopped preaching, if he had not stood up for what was right, he would have lived. And for Paul, we see a verse in chapter 26 where Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And yet both of them, led by the Holy Spirit, faced imprisonment and death. Why? I think it's a question worth asking. Why? Because they counted the cost and decided the cost was worth it. They counted the cost and decided the cost was worth it. I want to go back and read the beginning of the story with Paul. So right before he goes to Jerusalem, right before that long summary of all the crazy events, we see in Acts 21, 5 through 15, which I believe we have on the screen. When it was time to leave, we left the, and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. I love that little detail in all their travels. They knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Again, another detail I love. There's so much we could go into here, but just a cool detail. Verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Again, this is said before we see this come to happen. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, he gave up and said, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. We see in this passage, Paul counted the cost and decided it was worth it. He decided Jesus was worth it all. I love verse 13 where Paul says, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. But the parallels don't stop here because we've talked about the parallel between Paul and Diedrich Bonhoeffer. But we need to not miss the parallel between Paul's story and how it echoes Christ's story. In both these stories, we see Paul was found, they, ha they couldn't prove any of the charges. 
There was nothing they could hold against him. We see the same thing when Jesus is tried. They couldn't prove any of the accusations. They couldn't find a good reason to put him to death. And we also see that when the people couldn't change Paul's minds, when his friends couldn't stop him from going to Jerusalem, they said, the Lord's will be done. How similar to Jesus, who hours before facing the cross, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing he was about to face arrest and beating and death. He's so stressed out that he's sweating blood, and yet he prays these famous words to God the Father, yet not as I will, but as you will. I love in both these stories, there's a willingness to die to their own will, to accept what God has for them. Willing, Jesus was willing to face an excruciating death because Jesus counted the cost and decided it was worth it. Jesus decided we were worth it. He decided that following God the Father was worth it. We talk a lot about how Jesus decided we were worth dying, but I think we miss that element. He also decided following God's will, God the Father's will, was worth it. And Paul's story echoes this. When they say the Lord's will be done, and they head to Jerusalem. And something I think we'd rather not realize is that our story should also mirror Christ's. Going back to Bonhoeffer's famous words, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is a call for us. We see it in the Bible. We see it in um, Matthew. I believe it's Matthew. I don't have the book there. I'm pretty sure I took this from Matthew. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Pick up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Live Dead, which is an organization you've heard us talk about a few times. And we're going through the Live Dead journal currently, which has been awesome. Um, 30 days praying for unreached people groups. If you're not joining us, you've probably at least heard about it. But they talk about it this way. They tell a story in day 15 of missionaries who went to a new place and were killed and eaten by the people there. Cannibals. Great way. Great way to go. Twelve years later, John Patton from England decides he feels called to go back. But the response is not that great, understandably so, because being eaten by cannibals doesn't sound very fun. And one man says to him, essentially, you can't, you can't go, you're going to be eaten, you can't go. And the response of Patton was to say, your own prospect is to soon be laid in the grave. There you will be eaten by worms. 
What does it matter then if you are eaten by worms and I by cannibals? For in the day of resurrection, mine will be much more glorious. Yeah, I'm glad you're laughing. Like, it's crazy. Like, also, like, kind of a valid point. Like, you're going to be eaten by worms or by people. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it goes on to say, the, the Live Dead Journal goes on to say that martyrdom is not something to seek out, but it's also not something to hide from. And that, I think, is important. But this idea to live as if you're already dead, to live willing to give your life to Jesus, to live dead to ourselves, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. And this is not an easy call. I think we often envy the 12 disciples because they lived life with Jesus. They could just turn, hey, Jesus, what should I do? I have this problem. Can you tell me? What class should I take? What should I do after I graduate? Like they could turn and ask him all these questions because they definitely had the same questions we had. But whatever questions they had, they could ask him. And of the 11, because Judas had killed himself at this point, of the 11, all but John were martyred for what they believed. They tried to kill John, but failed, and so he was imprisoned for the rest of his life. Pick up your cross, an instrument of death, we might add, and follow me. And this is a call for us as well. And I'm not saying that he's calling you to physically die. Death tends to be a one-time thing, unless you're Dr. Strange, and then you can, like, die for Jesus many times over. But with that exception, death tends to be a one-time thing. But there's this daily element here, which clues us in we're called to die to ourselves. It's one thing to die. We're all going to die. We can convince ourselves, worms, people, then, now, but what about when it's a death to ourselves? What about when dying for Christ means the daily death to ourselves, to our own desire, to our own will? What about when we're called to die by living out hard situations or living for Christ when it's hard or loving your roommate or the person who drives you crazy? Or pursuing a career and telling people about Jesus when you don't want to. What about when dying is living for Christ when it's hard? When dying isn't a physical death, but an internal one. When God calls us to die to our false selves, to the facade that we want people to see that we half believe ourselves or when God's calling us to die to our self-sufficiency, the realization that we're not self-sufficient and we can't be or when he's calling us to die to our selfishness, being self-centered, thinking life is about me, at least partly about me, right? Or when God calls us to die to our pride 
or our self-righteousness. But this is hard. It's really hard. There's a reason it's called dying to ourselves. Because it's hard. But there's also freedom. Freedom is so possible when we die to ourselves. And I want to look at a quote, which we should have on the screen. Great. This is from, okay, so the end part is quoting that guy in that book, but it's from Unfeshered, which is... Um, a book I very much enjoyed. And it says, When we do finally come to the end of ourselves, it is such a strange new experience for Westerners that we feel like failures. Let's just like stop there for a second. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we start to die to our false selves, it is such a new experience that we feel like failures. Into that moment of failure, our culture inserts it's impatience for human limitations, offering us only two choices. Fall into the anxiety of adultish hyper-engagement. We'd better fix this on the one hand. Or into this despair of childish disen disengagement. We're beyond hope. So, like, we feel like life's falling apart. We either, like, fix it, fix it, fix it, or feel like this is all hopeless. For hyper-engagement, we're offered many remedies. Every question has a search bar. Every hunger has a product. Every lackluster skill set has a conference. Every limited power has a quick fix promise. This lifestyle works until it doesn't. And for despair, our culture offers us any number of dulling agents, which only deepen the disengagement. Everyone else seems strong and capable, so we get wrapped up in a desperate cycle of hiding our inadequacies from those who are desperately trying to hide, or their, hide their inadequacies from us. The point, then, is to help break the false distinction between the idea that there are those who are whole and those who have a lack. For the true distinction is between those who hide their lack under the fiction of wholeness and those who are able to embrace it. The true distinction is between those who pretend they are whole and those who admit that they're not. And I think she says it so well at the beginning when we start to feel this, when we start to die to ourselves, we feel like failures. We don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to deal with the fact that we're not self-sufficient, that the world doesn't revolve around us, that we have false selves we need to die to, that our facades are only facades and they're not real. And so we try to over-engage and fix it or fall into desperation. But when we realize, when we realize, when we realize that we've been looking at the wrong two options, when we realize that it's, our option is to be somebody who fakes being whole or somebody who admits that we're not, there's freedom in that. It's hard. It's really hard, especially that first time you feel like a failure. But it's so much freedom. We have to learn. We have to practice. It's really hard. 
But you guys, none of us are whole. None of you are whole. None of us are whole. Jeff and I are not whole. For all of you who think we have our lives together and our marriage is perfect, like, man, we are not whole. None of us are whole. And when we realize that, we can pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We can die to our false selves. We can die to our pride, to our self-sufficiency. We can let him come in and hand us our cross. And it's when we die to ourselves that we become alive in Christ. This was not planned, but I love so much the song they sang tonight about being alive. God, make us alive. But the truth is he cannot make us alive until we die to ourselves. But it's when we die to ourselves that he steps in and makes us alive in Christ. And the journey is hard, but it's worth it. Count the cost. The Bible tells you to. You don't build a house without first counting the cost. But it's worth it. To be alive in Christ, to have that freedom of your identity in Christ, that freedom to say, I am not whole, but I belong to Christ, is a beautiful thing. So if Jeff can come up, um, I'm going to pray. Um, and we're just going to give an opportunity to respond tonight. I know this is a heavy message, and I want to encourage you all to take it before Jesus. Ask him, God, what do you want me to die to tonight? What cross are you wanting to me to pick up? Um, and I want to I want to give us an opportunity to respond because I think there is sometimes we for ourselves need to like physically be able to respond in some sense. So as Jeff starts to play, I'm going to have you guys close your eyes for me as we pray. And I want to ask two questions tonight. Maybe you are here tonight and this sounds scary and crazy and you don't know what to do about it. That is okay. That is okay. We can talk about that. But maybe you are here tonight and you realize you see people following Jesus. You see yourself being called by Jesus and for the first time you want to respond and follow him maybe you've been counting the cost for a really really long time or maybe you've been counting the cost for all of 15 minutes but if you want to follow Jesus and let him be Lord of your life for the first time would you raise your hand for me so I can pray with you Thank you. My next question, maybe you are here and you love Jesus and you follow Jesus, but you are feeling him tap on your heart today. And there is something 
that he is wanting you to die to. There's an area of your life that you know he's just tapping at. Or maybe you don't even know what area it is, but you know there's something. If that is where you are, welcome. It's hard, but it is a wonderful place to be. But if that is where you are, will you raise your hand? Because I would love to pray with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, I thank you that you don't ask us to be whole, that you don't ask us to be put together. You don't ask us to fit your, fix ourselves. As we take communion, Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken for us. Your body was broken because you want to bring us into your wholeness. You want to make us alive in you. And Jesus, I pray for anyone who is wanting to follow you and declare you as the Lord of their lives for the first time, that you would step into their lives, that you would step into their hearts. As my five-year-old says, that you will build your home in their hearts. that you will meet them where they're at and help them take those first steps forward with you. And Jesus, I pray for anyone here who is feeling your prompting, anyone here that you, you are tapping on their heart because there is something in their life that you want them to die to. I thank you. I thank you that you call us and as hard as it is that when you call us, you bid us come and die. Give us the strength to step into this journey. Give us the strength to admit that we are not whole, that we are broken, that we need you, that we are not self-sufficient. And remind us of your love. That you step in, that you make us alive that we take on who you are, your righteousness, your love. I thank you for everyone here tonight. I pray that you will continue to speak to us. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at MilwaukeeXA to keep up to date on our events and services. Or stop by Bolton Hall Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. in room B40.